This podcast is brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Mike Brady and you're listening to Gavin Wood's podcast. Mike Brady is my podcast guest, born in England and moved to Australia with his family at the tender age of 11. He is one of our music and sporting icons and still records and tours today. His biggest song, of course, was Up There, Kazali. Now, I want to know more about this lovable musician. Mike Brady, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Gavin. And lovely to speak to you after so long. I, I just see you like we're like ships in the night. Yes, we are. We are. <laughs> now, I want, to get, I want to get back to the early, early, early Mike Brady. Mm-hmm. Coming out to Australia at 11 years old, do you have recollections of the old dart? Well, I do, Gavin, because I could barely read or write. Hmm because I had a, had dyslexia. So my memory is actually acute. Um, and I remember everything from the saying goodbye to all my friends, like I was going to the moon, because yeah. it was like that in those days. You never thought you'd ever come back. Mm. Seeing the white cliffs of Dover for the first time as we sailed out of the Thames and round the corner into the English Channel. And I remember every port, every conversation, all the way to Australia, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I think a lot of those immigrant kids that came on, well, we were on the 10-quid scheme, you know, the the 10-pound poms, um, all those kids all felt very special because no one had had an experience like that four or five weeks on a great big white liner. Mm. What part of England did you grow up in? Uh, South London, um, Croydon, which incidentally was the first... Uh, part of England that was bombed that led to the Blitz. Um, they often say East London. Well, it wasn't. It was actually South. And they dropped uh, the Germans dropped bombs accidentally on the town. And I grew up in those bomb ruins. It was those uh, buzz bombs that came over. You heard them coming, and then all of a sudden they'd go silent. And that's when they're falling from the sky. That's right. Yeah, my mum used to tell me about them. Yeah. Weren't they uh, made of tough stock back then? They certainly were. My dad tells me this story about... Um, riding with his mum on his handlebars through this wood in um, uh, where she lived near Cheam before they were married, and there were bombs dropping either side of the, of the little lane. They were, you know, probably quite a way off, but uh, he was riding on a bike with a helmet on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to save him. <laughs> yeah, really helpful. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, um, those early years, it must have been a wrench for you, though, leaving all your friends. Oh, it was horrible. At 11, I mean, you would have been very much aware of where you're going to and where you've left. Yeah, I cried myself to sleep at night, and when we got here, we stayed one last night on the ship, and I didn't want to get off the ship. I loved it. But it was pretty basic. I mean, you know, there was no uh, hot water. It was salt water. You had to have salt water soap. Um, a lot of people died of various things on the trip out and were buried at sea. But the first place we lived was at the exhibition buildings where the museum is now in Melbourne. And we, we lived in uh, little huts and they burnt briquettes. I've always hated the smell of briquettes. Now, did your family choose to come to Melbourne or was it just the luck of the draw? We put there Melbourne as a preference because my dad had a job. But we didn't know until we got our labels uh, the couple, couple of days before and we went down into the hold to, to find our luggage and stick our labels on them. And it said, Com Nom Vic, which meant Commonwealth Nominee Victoria. 
and uh, that's where we were shunted off. Now, did you assimilate okay? Because I know we were a bit tough on the Greeks and the Italians back in the 60s until we found out that they brought all this beautiful culture with them, like, you know, great food, you know, and all of that. Uh, was it tough for a little pommy boy? Oh, yeah. We used to called little pommy bastards and all that stuff. And um, I hung out with a group of Italian kids because uh-huh. I had a bit of an affinity. Like, no one lived in Lorimer Street Fisherman's Bend, no one lived there at all. So we didn't actually get to mix with kids, uh, really only at school, and school was a bit of a trial. But Port Melbourne was a very, very tough and rough place. And the expression, we catch and kill our own, was uh, was widespread. <laughs> yeah, well, it was the ports, you know, and the wharfies and all of that. I, I mean, they were, they were hardened men, weren't they? They were, but there was a community of sorts, you know, they... Every Sunday there was a barrel, and I used to go and play my guitar at the barrel, and the barrel was to you know, raise money to bail people out, or usually men, obviously, um, bail people out. What was that? Was that at the pub? The no, barrel? no, What's someone's the garage. Oh, someone's it garage. Was, okay. you know, and they played darts, and and they'd raise yeah. a bit of money to help the family if the, if they'd been taken away, and that's how it was. It was a very, very basic working-class suburb. And, you know, it, it had its uh, upsides too. So you mentioned guitar. When did you pick up the guitar? Well, on the hostel they had wash houses, which were these echoey rooms Yeah. Um, where the women, not the men, the women used to scrub the clothes. They didn't have washing machines. They had concrete troughs with scrubbing boards, yeah, and the, and the copper, the boil things. And at night it was empty and it was a natural echo chamber. So all the kids used to gather on nights when it wasn't too cold and sing to each other. The girls would sing a song, the boys would sing a song. And a bloke called Jimmy Taylor, um, I remember all their names, it's amazing. Um, he uh, bought a guitar and showed me a couple of chords. Well, I had to get a guitar, didn't I? <laughs> So I sold Harold Sons outside the Melbourne Town Hall. Paper, city final. Yeah, hero, paper, hero. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I bought my first uh, first guitar, and uh, that was it. I was off. I was probably 12, and I uh, was playing guitar. I went on the old radio auditions on 3UZ with um, John McMahon. And I went on about five times, and I came second or last, and then I, I won it. What was the song you sang? Can you remember? Bebop Alula. Oh, good. Gene Vincent. And what's that, a three-chord one? Yeah, it's pretty simple. And and who would have thought <laughs> a young little Michael Brady from way back then would have had a career like you've had? Well, I certainly didn't think so. My dad was outraged. He made me take the guitar back that I bought with my own money, but they wouldn't give me my money back. Um, so I walked out with the guitar in a in a cardboard box. I mean, I got it from Maples, which was a furniture shop, and that's where it belonged in a furniture shop. It was it was really not a great guitar, but um, I walked out very proud with a big smile on my face, and they said they wouldn't exchange it. What school did you go to down there? I went to St Joseph's Elementary School in Bay Street, Port Melbourne. It was a pretty tough school. Catholic school, nuns were there, and then I went for a very short time to Mount Carmel College, which I used to call Mount Carmel Porridge, Um, and uh, I didn't last very long there at all, and I left school on my 14th birthday. 
did you leave school thinking that you're going to be a, a, a an Eddie Cochran? I dreamt of being famous, of uh, being able to sing and being famous. I don't think I was a particularly good singer. And I never got famous, so there you go. (laughs) Yes, you did. Now, the transition from the uh, radio auditions, how did you end up with Mike, Pete and Danny, MPD? I mean, there's a couple of years there that we've got to fill in. Yeah, it was a short succession. My first band was an Italian band. We used to do weddings. Hey, see. With um, some boys called the Sofo Brothers. Then I formed a band called the Hearstman. Why we call ourselves the Hearstman, I don't know, but we did a lot of backing of other people, particularly Bobby and Laurie in those days at the different dances, and there was a brawl at every dance that we ever played at. Did you learn to read music? Not then, I didn't. I, I went and did grades of music theory and practice in my 30s because I shamed myself into it, having been the guest conductor for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra at the Melbourne Town Hall, and the orchestra, instead of watching the real conductor, is when they had guest people, watched me, and I got found out. <laughs> oh, you, you were flipping the pages at the wrong time. Everything. I was waving my arms around. The tempo was wrong. Everything was wrong. <laughs> oh, um, Mike. And uh, so I, I shamed myself. In. But in those days, I didn't read it. So from the from the uh, Hurstman, Stan Rofe was on 3KZ in those days, and he put out a thing, my favourite band in Melbourne, was a band called The Phantoms, and this was in by 19, this time was nineteen sixty four. The I was, Phantoms were big. They were quite a big band. Yeah, yeah. They they toured with the Beatles, and their guitarist had broken his arm, and they wanted a guitarist to fill in for Dave Lincoln. So I rang from the phone box outside the Housing Commission flats in Port Melbourne, where we were living at that stage, and Pete Watson got on the phone. He said, uh, "Where are you from, then?" And I said. I'm from Croydon, London. He said, so am I. You're in. <laughs> that was right my place, audition. right time. That's brilliant. Isn't that my idea? Yeah. Yeah. So I left home there at 15, went touring with them all over Australia. And... So tell me the transition from the Phantoms to MPD Limited. Well, Pete Watson was the bass player in the Phantoms, long-time bass player, and I both thought that they weren't going anywhere. We didn't think that the Phantoms were really going to make it. They wore um, bright blue lame suits on the Beatles tour. The, um, the, the Beatles had a little a young uh, tailor called Pierre Cardin, and we had a boy called Jimmy from Mitchum. Uh, and, and he said, <laughs> Jimmy from Mitchum said, you better wear something that they remember, people remember, and I think they always did, with a, with a tinge of laughter. But... Um, we just didn't think that the Phantoms had uh, the Je ne quoi, you know, that they just didn't quite have it. So we thought Danny Finley, the, the drummer in a band called the Saxons, because we all used to play Woomer in Melbourne at the Festival Hall on Sundays for Bruce Stewart. And, um, and he, you know, they'd have all the big bands and uh, 10,000 kids. It was fantastic and um, really wonderful. And uh, Bruce helped us out a little bit there. He was a terrific bloke. And uh, he approached Danny to leave the Saxons and to join Peter and I. And we decided, the three of us in the car one night, Mike, Pete and Danny, um, no, in no particular order, but we chose that order, um, MPD Limited. We wanted to sound corporate. So we, we formed the band. Three weeks later, we were touring with um, Dave Clark Five and The Seekers, 
Dave Clark Five, how did you get on with them? How did you get on with the boys? They were very nice people, and the Seekers were lovely to us. It was their return tour to Australia. But the Dave Clark Five were very down to earth. Dave was a little bit um, perturbed because Danny was the best show drummer in the country, probably probably in the world. And Dave was a drummer. Wasn't Dave he? was a well, he sort of pretended to be a drummer. Um, he, he couldn't really play, and that sounds a bit cruel, but um, he could only just sort of go boom, 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 And uh, of course, I remember seeing him looking out from the side of the stage with this aghast look on his face, with Danny with lights in his drums and all this stuff. And oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a strange thing to do, put uh, such a big show drummer on with a guy that was, that's probably a bit harsh, but masquerading as a... But look, they had a lot of success. You know, Mike Smith was a keyboard player. They were lovely, lovely people. Tobin Brothers believe every life is unique. Every funeral should be too. Visit turbanbrothers.com.au. Hi, this is Mike Brady, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's podcast. Well, Ian McFarland wrote of MPD Limited, their performances left fans screaming for more. Yeah, I don't think we get enough um, encyclopedias of Australian rock, mainly because I think Noel McGrath wrote the first one, and then the rest were all written in Sydney. And then we were big in Sydney, but they really concentrated on a lot of suburban bands in Sydney, and MPD was always sort of left out, but we had number ones and we toured in our own right. And first all-Australian tour, it had um, Bobby and Laurie, Normie Rowe, uh, MPD, and there was one other act. And that was the first all-Australian headline stadium tour in Australia. Who was the other act? Bobby and Laurie, MPD, Normie Rowe. I just don't remember who the other act was. I should. Oh, the Easy Beats. Easy Beats. Oh, right. Okay. Beats, the four acts, and we built you know, massive uh, houses. Now, when did the uh, South Vietnam tour come up? I was 18 or 19 then. I know I registered for national service before I left, so I must have been in my 19th year, and I actually got uh, my papers to report from medical and all that stuff. And I was in Vietnam of all places. And when I came back, I wrote a couple of articles and I was indefinitely deferred. Um, I, I don't know whether my marble came up or not, but a few army, senior army people had words with me saying, you'd better be able to back up these allegations you've made. And they weren't really because I didn't see any Australians there, to be honest. We were the Americans and we saw a lot of uh, behaviours there. And that was a cathartic experience, spending nine or ten months in Vietnam at the height of the war during the 1968 Tet Offensive. That's that's right, actually. I turned 20 in Vietnam. Well, one could say that you've done your national service. Well, it was an interesting argument. If I had have been a conscientious objector, and I thought of that, but, you know, it took a lot of courage to go into the army and fight a war. I mean, I respect those people so much, especially the Nashos, and, you know, quite a few of them died. But, you know, the, the to be stand up there in court, and I thought I'd have to be tried in a civilian court, probably by civilians. That's going to be interesting because I'll say, well, I've just come back from Vietnam and I know what's going on. 
I don't know whether that has any influence on it or not, really, Gavin, to be quite honest. You just got deferred, so that's okay. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I got deferred. And um, the truth was, if I had to, I probably would have gone. Um, I, I don't know whether I had the courage to be a conscientious objector. And anyone that was a conscientious objector in those days, and indeed some of the soldiers, would say they were under enormous psychological pressure because it was seen to be doing your duty and being a conscientious objector was seen as being a coward. Well, to be quite honest, I don't believe conscientious objectors were cowards. They ended up being right anyway. Well, of course, it was a war we shouldn't have gone to in hindsight, and it broke a lot of people. There's still a lot of people broken today. It's very sad. I've got a lot of dear friends, Gavin, that I still in touch with. I'm a member of the RSL, and uh, I've got a lot of dear friends who were affected by Vietnam and have managed to get on with their lives, and they know who they are. I love them. Yeah, you've got to take your hat off to Normie Rowe. Um, you know, what Norm's, you know, Norm's still, I can see it in Norm, you know, Norm Norm still has, you know, he's got the black dog happening and all of that, and uh, it's tough on those guys, and, and people only... He's had a tough life. Yeah, Norm. and 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 they're just waking up to it now, unfortunately. Now, after... We're very good friends, as you probably yeah. know, he and I are pretty close. I understand there could be a tour coming up later on in the year with you and young Norm. Yeah, we've done a few shows together and they've gone pretty well and it's good fun. We get on well because I kind of understand him and he understands me. And now that we're older, um, and this is one of the lovely things about age, your ego is not such a big thing. You know, I'm talking about me, um, but all artists have to have an ego, you know. I mean, you've been there. We're all the same. We're yeah, all the same. Yeah. But as you get older... The fellowship of artists of artists is a wonderful thing. We actually really care about each other. Yeah, it's wonderful. I love it. I love it. Now, uh, MPD, of course, uh, broke up. Danny went off to uh, manage his wife, the wonderful Colleen Hewitt, and uh, Pete Watson. He joined Johnny Young for a while. He, oh, right, in, in the... Uh, and so did I. Yeah, well, I yeah you both played in the company, didn't you? Yeah, I, John and I didn't get on. We're mates now, but boy, boy we fought. <laughs> I think I, I share a fair bit of responsibility um, for he and I not getting on. I think it's an equi, uh, uh, normal um, ego of young young men, I think. I reckon you used to wind him up. <laughs> <laughs> so then, then you guys left company and Danny went on to manage, of course, the wonderful Colleen Hewitt. And yes. Sad, sadly, Peter Watson uh, became ill in the late 60s and died in 1972. Mm. Uh, what, what was Pete's uh, illness, Mike? Well, he developed, um, I think it was like multiple myeloma. Anyway, he got very ill, but he, he kept his, um, his uh, veneer up right till his death, and it was amazing. Now, Mike, when did Mike Brady stumble in or discover jingle writing? Is it another thing, right place, right time for Mike Brady? Oh, just about. Roger Savage was a great recording engineer and producer, film music mixer. He's just amazing. Still working in his 80s. Unbelievable. Joined uh, Bill Armstrong um, at Armstrong Studios, it was actually called Telefil before they moved and called it Armstrong Studios. And I went to Rogers and asked him if I could get some work because I was doing pretty menial jobs after MPD and all that. Um, I was playing in a couple of little bands. But um, I went and I asked him and he, he booked me 
for a couple of sessions for people like um, Bruce Woodley and um, and David Mackay, great English, well, Australian really, but English now, record producer. Mm. And I got booked to sing other people's jingles. And some were very good. Um, some weren't that good. Um, you know, I sang on everybody's record, though, from... Renee Geyer's first album to Hans Polson's Boom Sha La La Lo and Rose Coloured Glasses and I went to Hans's memorial service recently. But I sang for everybody and I thought I could do, particularly with the jingles, a little bit better. So I tried for a long time to get a, a, a job and eventually I got one and it was at an advertising agency and they wanted me to do a thing for Stimmerol chewing gum. And uh, the bloke there, the creative director, said, we want something really bouncy, really up-tempo, because we're going to call it Stimmerol, the sportsman's gum. I've told this story many times. And I said, oh. Isn't... I haven't I haven't heard it. Oh, well, no. It didn't go to air, I don't think. He, he wanted it to be up-tempo and all that stuff. And I said, oh, and they called it the sportsman's gum. And I said, oh, isn't it available for women? And he thought I was a real smiley pants. He said, leave the strategy to us. So um, um, so I went away and I wrote a thing, a tortured ballad. Um, it must have been around the time of Dr. Hook because it went, Stimpo, chewing gum brings out the best in everyone. So in everything you do, Stimpo brings out the best in I got banned from the advertising agency over that one <laughs> for two years. Nice, nice place to start. But then I started to get little jobs. One of my first ones was Hard Yakka. That was a legendary one, wasn't it? That was early 70s. That opened every door for me in Australia. Then I just went from strength to strength. So Sydney was my biggest market. I lived in Sydney on a boat for quite a while, a very nice boat, I might add. I'm in uh, Rushcutters Bay, um, and uh, I still do the odd jingle. Um, I'm more into the strategy side of it these days, but I still do. I, I, I'd love to hear Hard Yakka. I'll let the guitar here. I'm going to put you down. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, I just happened to be there. Fabulous. Not lovely lyrics, not too much to think about there. No, no. I was, the spot. I was clearly into the good, the bad and the ugly in those days. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about SPC Baked Beans and Spaghetti. I got a brief from an advertising agency that I did quite a bit of work for and I'd won a few awards with work that I'd done for them and they gave me hmm. a brief for three jobs. I think one was Bob Jane, T-Mart, Bob Jane, T-Mart. I think that was one. Um, yeah. And SPC and a thing for Railways of Australia, which was, um, that might not have been them, but anyway, it was the same company. They folded into another company. Um, and I wrote them all in one morning. <laughs> and uh, SPC, they had the line, mm. um, Hungry Little Human Beings, I think. 
it was them. It's a long time ago. Um, but I was into Mad Voices, and I thought we wanted something mm. really crazy. So I, I've done lots of Mad Voice commercials, like you know, where is Pizzi? Big beans, spaghetti, spaghetti, spaghetti. Have you where the stars were day? I SPCP and all that. And I use that same voice for Dodo, Dodo, Internet the flies. Um, that wasn't then, that was months later. But I used to do a lot of like mad hmm. things that people didn't even know was me and a lot of instrumental work. And right. really right up until I became wider known, most of my work was instrumental. Isn't that funny? And then I got typecast. Now, now you had uh, Full Moon Records and uh, re Remix Publishing. Yep. You worked out of Flagstaff Studios. That's where the infamous Shut Up Your Face by Joe Dolce was recorded, wasn't it? <laughs> that's right, that's right. One night um, I was just leaving the studio about, I don't know, 6 o'clock, 6.30, and I heard, I was with Peter Sullivan, who did a lot of work with me, <clears throat> musician. and The two-man band. Well, yeah, that, well, the two-man band was a pseudonym, and people say that. I just made it up on the day because I didn't want to call it Mike Brady. So that's right. how that came into being. Oh, that's cool. We never actually really worked as a band. There was only two of you anyway. There was only two of us, that's right. <laughs> but Peter certainly played and sang the choruses of the Kazali, and no right. doubt about that, and added that modulating key change, which is a very good uh, hook in the song. Anyway, uh, but I was leaving the studio, and we, we, I think we entered the pub across the road. Anyway, um, I couldn't get it out of my head, neither could Peter. What's the matter, you? Hey, God, no respect. So I went back to the studio after talking with Peter. He, he thought it was really hooky too. And I opened the door, and I said, well, hello, I'm the owner. I'm Mike Brady. And he said, well, he's Joe Dalton from Ohio. And he told me that um, he'd been to Michael Gudinski, the late Michael Gudinski, and to Glenn Wheatley, late Glenn Wheatley, and <clears throat> that if Michael didn't do it, Glenn was going to do it. And he rang me, yeah. and I gave him a check for $1,000, which <clears throat> was unheard of in those days. I don't think I was even a – I was – well, the whole thing was, including the film clip, cost $800. So he'd already made a profit. So he rang me early the next morning and said, oh, they've passed on it. I'm going to cash the $1,000. So that's how I got it. And within three weeks, it was certainly the, a massive number one in Australia, bigger than Shut Up Your Face. And then it went number one in worldwide. England? Yeah. yeah, England. America. Well, America it didn't make number one. There was a bit of skullduggery there, right. um, which is um, – uh, it sold a massive amount of records, mm. but there was a, I was with a company called MCA, right. and they they said they had a lot of returns. Well, people were buying it by the dozen in New York and LA. Mm. Mm. Um, it was a huge hit, yeah. and everybody still knows it in America. Yeah. And Joe and I still um, are mates, and I still manage um, Shut Up Your Face for him, um, the publishing side of it, and sometimes the Master side, yeah, we're still very good. Any song can be played at a funeral. What would you like? Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Hi, this is Mike Brady, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's podcast. Now, tell me about Up There Gazali. I know the story about, was it Keith McGowan, the legendary radio guy? heard it and said it should be a record or something. Do you know the full <laughs> story? I'm sure you do. Yeah, I do. He started playing the one minute 15 version. I couldn't get it down to a minute. 
they wanted a 30 second and a one minute version but the best this I is could, channel seven channel seven yeah and the best right. i could do is a minute and 15 so they ordered all their programming and scheduling and what they call traffic so they could accommodate a one minute 15 spot and fantastic <laughs> and keith it was pretty difficult because i had to find another 15 second one to make up the blocks of 30 a book yeah. 30 seconds and 60 seconds. And Keith McGowan started playing in the minute 15, and he got a huge reaction from the public. And we really learned from that um, with Joe Dolce a year later. Um, I'll mm. find that in a second. But he started playing it. And, of course, it created a demand. People were asking where they could get it. And he rang me and said, look, you've got to make a record of this. And I thought maybe it might be worth doing. We did. And it it was huge. It was it just took off. I didn't even know I was in France, and uh, I got a phone call from Ron Tudor, who happened to be in London, and uh, he borrowed a phone. Guess where he was at Buckingham Palace, getting an MBE. Well, of course he um, was. Yes, I remember he, that. Yes, he tracked me down. He said, "Hey, fat boy." I used to call him Pencil, which I won't go into. But <laughs> he said, "We've got a um, a number one hit," and I said, "What? What with?" He said. That um, up there, Kazali thing. I said, wow. He said, it's just selling as fast as we can make it. Incredible. So there, that was the, that was the, uh, and of course the following year, um, we already had a hit in Australia, but uh, the record company in England got um, an English radio uh, star. Oh, I can't think of his name. He mm. was huge from the Midlands, and he was all over England. Um, Terry Wogan. Oh, yeah, number one. Uh, yeah, huge, yeah. number one. Yeah. And uh, he started playing it. What he'd do is he'd take it off. He said, oh, they told me I've got to bully play this, and I don't want to hear it again. And he'd go, <laughs> like a scratching noise. And that incensed people who rang. The more he did that, the more it got requested. And, of course, I don't know this, but I would suggest that it was a little bit of a ruse where he played the game with us. And, of course, that made it a sort of million records. Gee, is that right? A million records. Which is amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I, I, I like, will you will you work to earn a living and on weekend comes the time. Can you just do a little bit of that for me, Mike, because I love that first verse. <laughs> love it. Well, <clears throat> well, I got attacked over that line. It's the only thing I've been attacked over because somebody wrote to me and a few people followed suit saying, you make an assumption that everybody has a oh. dog. So, <laughs> that's oh, true. People are petty. Too petty. Too petty. <laughs> well, you work to earn a living, but on weekends comes a time. You can do whatever turns you want. Go out and clear your mind. Me, I like football. And that's a bit of a giveaway, that. Yeah, me, I like football. There's a lot of things around. But when you line them up together, the footy wins hands down. Then, bam, 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 into the court. Uh, um, sorry, Mike, sorry, right. I got carried away. Everybody, don't sing, Gavin. No, you were actually in tune oh, there. You. you were I used to be a singer. Then I got into radio and became tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, speaking of radio, you, you were at 3AW, Mike, till midnight. I used to love that show on Saturday nights. Hey, I only did it for 18 years. Yeah. Only 18? Yeah. <laughs> and then they decided to make a change. I've been doing it for three. I don't think I'll get 18 out of it. <laughs> <laughs> 18 years I did it for. Every Saturday night. You did it from six till midnight. I mean, that's that's a lot of hours to fill in. Oh, sometimes longer. If there was a crisis or the 
um, Alan Pearsall used to um, do his great show after me and sometimes if he wasn't well I'd keep going and sometimes if there was a terrible crisis they'd keep me on air right. I, my longest shift was I think I started at 6.30 one night and ended up at 6am in the morning and came back at 4 in the afternoon that was during the terrible uh, uh, Black Saturday That's fires awesome. yeah yeah. Awful. Now, mate, you've had uh, Up There, Mike Brady, the book by Noel Delbridge. Yeah. 1979, the TV Week Countdown Awards. Uh, you were nominated as Most Outstanding Achievement. What was that for? I can't remember that one. I think that was Up There, Kazali. Up There, Kazali. Yeah, probably would have been. I won yeah. the 3X Roy Record of the Year. And, yeah. Um, did, you, whoever... did you appear on Countdown? Did Molly get you on Countdown? Yeah, I did it twice. I am. I, I, um, I compared it in Brisbane along with Mark Hunter, who um, was difficult at that time, but he apologised years later. And I thought he was a big man for that, the late Mark Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did it with a group of kids, and it's on YouTube, I think. There's a clip of it, and there's a very young me. I look about 12, surrounded, as they used to be in those days, by lots of young girls and boys. 2013, uh, oh, if your father was alive to see this. You won a Queen's Birthday Honours. Uh, you were made a member of the Order of Australia. Mike Brady, AM, congratulations. What a thrill. Yeah, well, it, is, it is a thrill to win an Australian award. It's, it's not the English award, it's the Australian award. Because, you know, we came here as, uh, like a lot of people did, as peasants. And, um, and uh, you know, it was a wonderful thing, unfortunately, they weren't around to see it, but I did think that exactly what you said. I wish my dad and my mum had been able to see it. It was a wonderful thing to have won. I'm, I'm still very proud of it. Yeah. And also, you should be very proud. 2017, you were named Victorian of the Year by the Victoria Day Council. Congratulations on that, mate. Yeah, that was wonderful too. And I accepted that and the AM on on behalf of the people who do incredible work within communities, volunteer work. And yes, I've done quite a bit and all that stuff, but there's a lot of people that don't get recognised. And I still dedicate it, if it comes up, I always dedicate it to the unsung heroes, those who know who they are, that have done so much and have not had the recognition, you know. Well, Mike Brady also gives back, and I, I love telling people what, what you've, you're a life member and a board member of the Variety Children's Charity. You're also Prostrate Cancer Foundation, patron uh, of the Bali Children Foundation, Huntington Disease Association, Blue Earth, Melbourne Legacy, the Urella Society, and, uh, of course, you're an Australia Day ambassador. I, I think that's a very full dance card, Mike. Well, a few of those I am no longer. I've, I've played my role and moved on, but uh, mm. you know, quite a few I'm still involved with, and uh, I'm going to a variety function tonight. Oh, good. Okay. I've considered myself to be very lucky and uh, it's been an honour to help out where needed. I'm doing a, a charity thing tomorrow and I, I try to when I can. I can't do charity work all the time, especially at this stage of my life But um, <clears throat> because I don't live in Melbourne anymore so um, I have to come to Melbourne before I do anything unless I get a gig down my way and that's not very often. <laughs> So you've you've chosen the rural life now. I have, yeah, and I love it. Good on yeah. you.
Yeah, I, I think I, I think you deserve to uh, rest comfortably after all the work that you've done. You've lived five different lifetimes of what we've gone through today, and I thank you so much for your time, Mike. It's been a, an absolute pleasure uh, delving into Mike Brady, so to speak. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, well, thank you very much, and I love that you're back in Australia. We missed you for a long time, and it's wonderful that you're back here, and wonderful to speak to you for so long. It was a lovely, a lovely conversation. Well, you're a great guy, a champion, and we all love you, Mike. So thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Gab. This podcast brought to you thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives every day of the year.